This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Hey, I am so thankful you said that. Yes. You said you're going to obey, right? Glory to God. Praise God. What a message. Wow. Father, we uh, we just really we really need you. We want you, Lord. We want we want to obey you today. What I have to say isn't worth sticking around for, but your word is worth sticking around for. And God, I pray that your word would be so anointed today. And Lord, just hide me back in a corner where I'm not even seen. But let your word be prominent, preeminent. Lord, let us just see your word. And as we study the book of Acts, I pray that there would be something about it today that's just really fresh. Uh, Lord, as I was just texting someone last night just just burst into tears as I felt so inadequate to share your word. But Lord, you've called me, you've chosen me, and I'm honored to be able to be your mouthpiece today. Just uh, speak to us however you choose, in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapters 8 and 9 will provide part of our foundation, and then we'll actually be jumping over to uh, Corinthians. Uh, But the first segment will be Acts chapter 8, so I would ask you to open your Bibles there. We are in week four, for those of you that are part of this church, regular part, we're in week four of a series that we're calling Doing Church God's Way. And the first week, and and actually what we're doing, we're we're just kind of going back and rethinking things. You know, I, I think I told you in one of the services that, that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit disenchanted with church the way that we as Americans do it. And so I'm just trying to, in my own heart and mind, go back to the New Testament and see how they did church. But anyway, the first week our lesson was on rethinking church. The second week we looked at the topic of rethinking prayer. Third week it was rethinking boldness. And, and, and today... Our lesson is on rethinking the gospel. Now, I, I know some of you probably just tensed up as, as, as I said that, and, and some of you may be thinking, okay, has, has Joe succumbed to the pressure of changing the gospel and making it more palatable and more politically correct? And, and I'm not going to answer that for you. I'm going to let you decide that. But you've got to stick with me for the next 30 minutes or so, and then you can answer that. But please hear me out before you make that call. Is that, is that a deal? Thank you for that one person that's a deal with. Well, let's do a really quick review. Um, in this series, we've been asking, I, I guess the major question that we've been asking is, how did the message of Jesus Christ survive the first century and get to us 20 centuries down the road? I mean, when you think about it, this message had every reason to die out. 
I mean, first of all, the main leader was killed early on. In fact, Jesus was nailed to the cross before the church ever had his grand opening. How's that? The leader died before the grand opening. And then secondly, the 12 leaders that Jesus trained to continue the work, they were also killed. And then the rest of the followers suffered tremendous persecution. Some of them even died for their faith. And, and then to top it off and try to imagine this as, as, as Americans, try to imagine that there was no governing body that supported nor protected this movement, not the Roman government, not the Jewish government, not even the religious governing body of that day. So this group operated without the favor of any ruling body. So with multiple strikes against it, how did Christianity make it out of the first century? Well, the answer to that question is found in the book of Acts, and we've been talking about it, but Christianity obviously survived for several reasons. But one was that there were eyewitnesses to the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and because of the passion and, and because of the boldness of those eyewitnesses, every aspect of their lives was centered around Jesus. This was not just a sideshow. It was not something that they just did Sunday morning. Every aspect of their lives centered around Jesus. And listen to this. On day one of the church, over 3,000 new people embraced this message. These were not warmovers. These were not recommitments. These were not people who had fallen away, who had backslidden. These these were 3,000 new people who didn't just make a decision and check a box, but they wholeheartedly gave of themselves to Jesus. So this new movement went from about 120 followers of Jesus to 3,120 followers in a matter of one day. Well, then these new believers also had that same passion. And then they went into the streets of Jerusalem. They began to proclaim that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And within a couple more weeks, they say the church had grown to possibly up to around 10,000 people. And, and if we understand the population of Jerusalem during that time, this would have been over 10% of the population. And so now, catch the picture, instead of the initial 12 followers of Jesus, and instead of the 120 followers of Jesus before the day of Pentecost, or even the 3,120 believers on day one of the church, there were now 10,000 or more of these bold followers of Jesus going around the streets of Jerusalem saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's the Messiah. Our lives have changed, and we cannot and will not ever, ever, ever go back to the way that we lived before. Well, as you can imagine, without any governmental protection, persecution began to break out. And, and where we left off in our last lesson, the re religious leaders had dragged the apostles in before the Sanhedrin, and they were warned to stop talking about the name of Jesus. And to make their point, Luke tells us in the book of Acts that these men were flogged with a, a cat of nine tails, and, and uh, which means they were probably beaten to maybe within an inch of their lives. And Remember their reaction after they had been beaten? Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. <laughs> they had been beaten. They left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And, and notice, we don't find them huddling together going, well, why do bad things happen to good people? 
Or where was God? You know, if, if there were a loving God, he wouldn't have allowed this. No, you know what? That's the American way. That's what entitled and spoiled Americans think. And, and that's tragic. But we find these early believers rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. And, and they left the Sanhedrin saying, no disrespect to you religious leaders, but we can't stop talking about Jesus. And, and no way can you shut us up. We've seen this with our very own eyes. And, and we will not be quiet. Well, as this ecclesia, and remember the very first week I introduced the Greek word ecclesia to you. And, and that's the word that we translate church. But, but it actually means a movement or a gathering. And, and this ecclesia grew and, and other leaders began to surface. And one of them was a man named Stephen. Now, we don't know much about Stephen other than the fact that he was one of the first deacons or, or one of the first servers in the local church. And Stephen began to speak out boldly about his faith. And, and they decided to make an example out of him. And they paid some people to say false things about him. And, and at the end of the charges... Stephen gives a defense, and his whole defense is written out in Acts chapter 7. You can read it. We're not going to today to save time. But in that defense, he takes the Jewish audience from the Old Testament all the way through current times to explain that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And at the end of his message, and I hope this doesn't happen today, but at the end of his message, people were so upset with him, they physically picked him up, dragged him outside of the city limits, and they stoned him to death. The next time you hear a pastor talking about wanting to go back and have a first century church, you might remind him of Stephen stoning and ask if that's what he really wants. Well, after Stephen was killed and, and the Jewish leaders saw that there was no negative reprisal from either the Romans or the Jewish leaders, it empowered the enemies of the church to begin widespread persecution of those embracing Christianity in the city of Jerusalem. And, and that sets the stage for our scripture, which will introduce us to a man that will eventually take center stage in the spread of Christianity. And that's where we will pick up our reading, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. I'll be reading from the NIV. And Saul, that's the guy, and Saul was there, there at what? Well, at the stoning of Stephen, Saul was there giving approval of his death, and and by the way, Saul is actually the Hebrew name of the man that we will eventually be referring to as the Apostle Paul. Here's what happened next. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except for the apostles, so, so Jesus' disciples, they, they stuck around in Jerusalem. But it says all except them were scattered throughout, now listen to this, Judea and Samaria. D does that ring a bell? You know, persecution was so intense, many of the new followers of Jesus left Jerusalem. They headed to Judea and Samaria, which is a fulfillment of what Jesus had said. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let's keep on reading. Verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now question, why did Saul go from house to house? Why, why didn't the scripture say that he went from church to church or church building to church building? Well, back in those days, the church met in houses or homes. They didn't have church buildings like we do today. So basically what was going on is, is Saul began to put on a full court press. 
and his goal and his mission. And of course, the whole time he was thinking that he was serving God, but his goal was to stamp out those who were following Jesus. Well, Luke tells us that for the for three years, Saul persecuted the church. He arrested Christians. He threw them in jail. In fact, many of them were put to death. But what's so interesting, and we need to just capture this uh, this concept here, is that, is that while he was persecuting the church, the church continued to spread. Basically, it's like what happens. I don't know if you've ever been out and you've seen an ant hill. You kick it over, what happens? The ants scatter. That's basically what was was going on. Saul would find a group of Christians and basically kick it over, you know, start persecuting them, and the Christians would scatter. He would go find another group of Christians and kick over the anthill, and they would scatter. And this drove, and this was important because this drove the message of Jesus outside of Palestine. Well, at the end of three years of unchecked persecution, something fascinating happened. We're going to move on to Acts chapter 9 here, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So, so Saul said to the high priest, I would like your authority, I would like your blessing to continue arresting Christians, but now I'd like to expand this operation to Damascus. Asking for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. uh, Let me let me just stop here a second. At this point in in, in history, Christians were not called Christians. There wasn't a church in terms of an an establishment like like we think of church. It was still a gathering, an assembly. Remember, ecclesia. Um, but, But during this time, the movement began to be referred as the way, referred to as the way. And one question that scholars and theologians have asked for hundreds of years is, why did they refer to it as the way? And and we don't know for sure, but but the best theory, at least in my own mind, and and it satisfies my curiosity, is that when Jesus taught, remember what he said? I am the way, the truth and the life. You know, no one comes to the Father but through me. And, and apparently, this was so central to the teaching of Jesus that they were referring to this movement, uh, that when they were referring to this movement that was exploding with so much growth, they called it the way. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So, so Saul has letters of authorization to go to Damascus, arrest any Christian, drag them back to Jerusalem if he tried. But things didn't go as planned. Verse 3. As he, this is Saul, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, and, and this is really fascinating to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, if the church were like how most of us think of the church, the voice would have probably said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute it? You know, it being the church, the building, the organization, the pastors, it. But here in the first century, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, in verse 5, says, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this is very important. 
Let's try to just uh, cut through the fat here and try to zero in on, on, on the implication. Jesus was basically saying, what you do to my people, you're really doing to me. I mean, the persecution you are inflicting on my followers, you're doing that to me. Let's pause and just think about this truth for a moment. We, are you listening? We, the church, are representatives of Jesus on the earth. Amen? You got that? Not not individually. We're not that good. But collectively, as a body, we are the hands, we're the feet, we're the mouthpiece of Jesus. And so here's the point I want to make. When we do good to someone, whether it's someone in church or even if it's the meth addict or, or the alcoholic or the jerk at work, when we do good, we are essentially doing good to Jesus. But when we have bad attitudes or are critical or give a tongue lashing, we're selfish, don't put others before ourselves, we are essentially doing this to Jesus as well. Well, the voice continues talking, verse 6. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so Saul gets up, but as he does so, he realizes he can't see. He's literally been blinded by the light from heaven. So those around him lead him to Damascus. And for three days, as a blind man, he, he sits in someone's house, and the Bible says he didn't eat nor drink during that time. Well, at this point, Scripture introduces us to someone else. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Now, do you know what Straight Street means? It just means that the street was straight. That's all it means. That's the way they they described it. Go to Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, now I'm sure that Ananias is thinking, Saul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, Saul of... Oh, that name rings a bell. And so he said in verse 13, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And, and, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And in other words, Lord, I've heard of this guy. I don't trust him. He's up to no good. God, are you sure you want me to go? Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. Now, this is where the story becomes a little bit more clear as to how the message of Jesus survived the first century. Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. That's us. And their kings and to the people of Israel. So this was huge. This tells us that this was not just a Jewish message. This was for the entire world. Well, despite the risk, Ananias went, found Saul. And and you can imagine Ananias as he's walking up to the house. He's thinking, you know what? This is the man that's responsible for arresting Christians, dragging them out of the house, taking them to Jerusalem. And we never hear of them again. They're gone. They just disappear. Ananias goes. He knocks on the door. They let him in. Sure enough, there's Saul sitting in a chair, blind as a bat. He's praying, and Ananias walks up to him, lays hands on him, and says, Brother Saul, 
That right there is one of the reasons that down through the years we've referred to each other as brother or sister, you know, here in church. And when Ananias laid hands on him, Luke tells us that something like scales fell off Saul's eyes and Saul was able to see again. Ananias began to explain that uh, to, to Saul that God had given him a unique mission and even though he would suffer greatly, yet this mission would take the message of Jesus to the entire known world. In verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And, and I can just imagine that he's there at that house that every little bit the door would open a little bit and the followers of Jesus would come and peek in. And sure enough, there was Saul, not threatening, not persecuting, not arresting, not killing anyone. Well, do you know what Saul began to do immediately? Remember, he had just gotten saved. This is radical. Verse 20, at once he began to preach. You have got to be kidding. Just got saved. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc? We'd have probably said something else today, but raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name and and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Now, after this, for the next 12 to 14 years, we don't know exactly. You've got to kind of study this and follow the timeline. We don't know exactly how long. But for all practical purposes in Scripture, it appears that Saul more or less disappears. You know, he shows up here and there, for example, in the book of Galatians. We read where Saul spent two weeks with Peter, Peter just kind of absorbing the teachings of Christ. And then we know that he spent some time with James, uh, the, the brother of Jesus. And then he went to Jerusalem at least on two different occasions. But it seems like during the next 12 to 14 years, Saul was being nurtured and discipled in the Lord in the background. Well, after this period of preparation, Saul launched out on what we've come to know as Paul's missionary journeys. And, and for the next 10 or 11 years, he traveled mainly by, by ship through Turkey and Greece. And, and we've got a map here. This just kind of shows you, you know, this is just, uh, there, there's, there's Rome over here. And of course, you've got Israel over here and, and all, all through there and all of these lines. Uh, three different missionary journeys. That's, that's where, and, and Paul on, on land. He, uh, he would walk, take a, take a ship on the water. And, um, and, and during those 10 to 11 to 12 years, here's what he would do. It's predictable. He would go to the main cities. He would head to the synagogue first and try to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. That was his first stop. Predictably, they would throw him out and in some cases beat him, stone him, have him arrested. And in those cases, he would shake the dust off of his sandals. And go to the Gentiles in that area and say, I've got some great news for you. God has provided a wonderful plan to rescue you from the empty religion that you're following. Let me give you some quick history here. And then I, I, I want to get to the main essence of this. But I had to really give you history here so that you understand. In 58 AD, while in Jerusalem, Saul and now Paul was arrested, taken up to Caesarea, kept in jail there for two years. 
There he let them know he was a Roman citizen, that he wanted to be tried by Rome. So he began the long, dangerous journey from Jerusalem all the way back to Rome to where he was under house arrest for two years. While under house arrest in Rome, he wrote some of the uh, of the literature that's familiar to us. He wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus that we know as the book of Ephesians. He wrote to the uh, a letter to the church in Philippi that we know as the book of Philippians. And, and, and he wrote other letters as well. Some of his works apparently were lost, but many were preserved and formed the bulk of the New Testament. After two years in Rome, he was released. Then he was rearrested in the year 66, spent about a year and a half, once again in prison, this time in a real dungeon in Rome. Nero was the emperor. And we all know Nero's fondness for Christianity during that part of history. Then in the year 67, we don't know the details. But probably early one morning, Paul's prison doors were opened. The guards took him out silently, walked him outside of the city. Paul probably knew where they were headed. Without any ceremony that we're aware of, the Apostle Paul was beheaded. His life ended. But the impact of his life had really just begun. A year later in 68 AD, Nero committed suicide for fear of being assassinated by his followers. And and I've said this before, it's an interesting side note, but today people name their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. And if your name is Nero, my apologies. So what's the essence of this message? That's my introduction. I'm ready to start the message now. And I know a good part of this message lesson might have sounded like a boring history lesson, but what's the takeaway? What's the bottom line? Here it is. Over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul would go to Gentile regions and say, even if you're not Jewish, even if you don't comprehend the Old Testament, Paul would say, I want you to understand the gospel. And so Paul made it a point those 10 or 11, 12 years that he's, that he's on those missionary journeys, he wanted to make sure that they, they understood the gospel of Jesus. And thankfully, the Apostle Paul summarized the, summarizes the gospel so clearly. And, and here I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because we're going to find out what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to pick up our reading in verse 1. Now, brothers, give you just a minute to find it. Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Gets that word, gospel. Which you received and on which you have taken your stand. And listen, by this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. And so, Paul is saying, okay, I preach the gospel to you, and and, and by this gospel you are saved if you hang on to it. And then in the next couple of verses, Paul defines for us what is the gospel. Verse 3, 
for what I received, and, and that's what he received from God and during those that mentored him during the time of preparation for ministry, for I, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So r- right here he's saying as of first importance, this is what you would call the essentials. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. He's saying this is of first importance. This is the gospel. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And so here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared. That's the gospel. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment and talk about that quite a bit more. But, but let me finish reading this segment of verses. And, and, you know, he says that he appeared and then he mentioned some of the ones that Jesus appeared to. Cephas. Who was Cephas? Peter. And then to the twelve. That'd be the twelve disciples. Verse six after that. He appeared and catch this. To more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time. So, so, so what did Paul say was of first importance? Here it is. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And then he appeared to a bunch of people. And by the way, this was written probably in the early 50s, maybe 55 AD, 20 to 25 years or so after the resurrection. And, and Paul was saying, you know, the resurrection. And, and, and yeah, it's tough to, for, for us to wrap our minds around the resurrection. But he was telling the people that, that, that there were multiple people that saw Jesus after the resurrection. In fact, 500 people at one time who saw the resurrected Jesus. You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, I had a vision. Well, how many, uh, one person, you know, th- th- this was nothing like that. This was where Jesus appeared to a bunch of people over 500 at one time. And I think Paul was implying, hey, if you want to get yourself a boat ticket and go back to Jerusalem, even though he said, yes, some had fallen asleep. In other words, some had died. But, but after 20 to 25 years, there were, there were still plenty of people alive who saw Jesus after his death and resurrection. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And, and then Paul brings it down to his personal ministry. And last of all, he appeared to me also. As to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle and... I mean, why would Paul call himself the least? In terms of prominence in, in the New Testament, he was one of the greatest. Well, the answer is, last part of verse 9, because I persecuted the church of God. He says, I'm the least because I persecuted the church. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. And, and so he's saying to the Corinthians, and I don't know why God chose me to bring this message to you. Of all the people that, that should have been chosen to plant these churches, I'm the least. But God chose me by his grace. And I've got news for you. God chose you by his grace. We're the least of the least. God chose us. So, for those of us who aren't Jews by birth, I think that's probably most of us or all of us. For those of us who weren't raised to look for a Messiah, it's all of us. For those of us who weren't weren't well-versed in Scripture, and that takes in a bunch of us as well, Paul defines the gospel in four concise statements that we read. 
He said, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. In fact, can we just say it together? On the count of three, let's all say it together. One, two, three. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. Do it again. One, two, three. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised and he appeared. You know, Paul didn't say, well, now, um, today we're going to talk about the days of creation and I'm going to convince you that they were seven literal days or they weren't seven literal days or... He didn't say, well, we're going to spend some time talking today just about what happened to the dinosaurs. Or, or let's try to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Or, or let's take a session and find out what kind of music pleases God more. Would it be hymns or contemporary music? Or, you know, let's discuss the political situation today. Or, or, or let's discuss Revelation where there are all kinds of horses and fire. And No, no, no. And, and there's a place to study some of that. But Paul was saying to these Gentiles that were just like us because we're Gentiles. He was saying, don't forget the basics. Yes, you probably have a lot of questions about Christianity. And yes, bad things happen to good people. And yes, good things happen to bad people. And yes, you may not fully understand certain scriptures. But here's the irreducible minimum. Here is the part you can't ever lose sight of. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And he appeared to a whole bunch of people. He was saying, don't forget that. And even though Paul was a very intelligent man and he could have spewed out all kinds of deep theology and doctrine and prophecy, yet he didn't want these new Gentile Christians to be wrestling with matters, complicated matters of the law that really in light of eternity didn't make a difference. And frankly, I think that sometimes we confuse the gospel. I think we spend sometimes more time on incidentals than fundamentals. We've made the gospel a bunch of do's and a bunch of don'ts. And, and sometimes we've even reduced the gospel down to a moral code. We've reduced the gospel down to a political viewpoint. We've convoluted. We've confused the bottom line. And that's why today I wanted us to rethink the gospel. What is the gospel? And thankfully, the Apostle Paul put it in terminology that we can all understand. And, and again, I, I, if it's in the Word, it's important. We need to study all of the Word. But don't forget that the gospel, according to what Paul says, the gospel of Christ, is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And then He appeared. That's the starting point. That's the stopping point. And just as a side note, did you notice that Paul, in this definition of the gospel, didn't say anything about baptism, even though that's biblical. You notice he didn't define the gospel as going to church every Sunday, even though you need to do that. He didn't define the gospel as being a good law-abiding citizen. He didn't define the gospel as paying your tithe. And, and again, those things are important. You know, Paul didn't even preach and say, you know what, I had a dream, I had a vision. And I want to tell you my vision. You know, I thought about telling you my dream that I had last night. 
In fact, I think I will. This just goes to show sometimes how we can, we as pastors can get so off track. And during the night, I, I had a dream, and this is true. I had a dream that a snake dropped out of the ceiling and landed in my hair, and it was in my hair. That was my dream. I just thought I'd share that with you. And that's sometimes about as deep as our messages as pastors go. That's it. And so Paul was trying to cut through the chase and say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He died for our sins, He was buried, He rose from the dead, and He was seen. And, and the gospel should be the unifying theme with other Christians around the world. Our doctrine is not a unifying theme. Our music is not a unifying theme. Our dress doesn't unify us. Our traditions don't unify us. But the gospel should unify us. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. So my question for you as we wrap this up. Has there ever been that time in your life, that aha moment, where you said, I believe it. I embrace the gospel. Has there ever been that moment for you? You know, some of you, and, and, and I typically get emails from people, and they, they will pick out something in my sermon or, or something, an aspect of the Bible. And, and frankly, sometimes I feel like a first-class dunce. And I have to say, I don't know. Sometimes I want to say I don't care, but I try to be a good boy there. But, and, and I'm okay with being a dunce for some questions, but, but I always want to be clear about the gospel. I know you're getting tired of me saying it, but Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. He was seen. That's the gospel. And if there's never been a moment in your life where you've embraced that personally, I want to give you that moment today. Today is the perfect day for you to embrace this message and, and to join the ecclesia. N not this church. Frankly, I don't give a rip about church membership and I'm sorry some of you were you, you, that that was part of the foundational aspect of your life being a member of the church and I, I don't give a rip about membership church membership but I do give a rip about being part of the church of Jesus Christ the ecclesia the movement that's what matters and so I just want to know have you joined the ecclesia the movement the body of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you haven't, why don't you do so? Why don't you do so? Accept the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for your sins. You know, He was buried. But thank God on the third day, there was a resurrection. And then, He was seen by a lot of people afterwards. Jesus is alive. And so, maybe there's somebody here this morning that has never embraced the gospel. You've, maybe you've made a decision. You've checked the box. Maybe you've been baptized. That's good. That's great. But have you ever accepted Jesus as Lord of your life? The supreme being, for He controls you. And if you have not embraced the gospel would you do so today? 
Lord, I, I, I just pray here in these last few moments Lord, we just lift up these people. Lord, I realize that I realize that most of us as, as, as Gentiles, we have come to know you. But Lord, here in, in, in America where it's so comfortable and Lord, we've become all-inclusive just to be a good person. And if we say a little prayer once in a while, we think that that's it. And God, I pray that you would just kind of cut through just some of those pre-existing maybe excuses that we have that we hold on to. Lord, if there's somebody here that hasn't truly confessed Jesus as Savior of their life, I pray that today they would do so. God, don't let there be anybody lost from this church. Lord, I pray that there would be some people with honesty and with courage to do what's right. Lord, I just pray your spirit upon us right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there anybody here that would say, Joe, God has spoken to me today. I need your prayer. Would you just lift your hand, raise your hand? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Anybody else? Pray for me. God has really spoken to me today. Thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else? Thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else? I want to ask you to stand, and we're not going to take long. I really don't feel a pull to just beg and plead. But is there someone here that you would like to come? Maybe you've strayed away from God, and you need to get closer to the fire, and you need to just confess your apathy, unconcern. Is there anybody like that? Do you want to come, and you want to kneel, and... Maybe there's someone here for the first time you have never, ever embraced the gospel and you want to do so. We'd love to pray with you. We don't embarrass you. You don't have to say anything. You don't confess your sins to me. You confess them to Jesus. Anyone before we wrap things up and go home? Lord, why is it that uh, so many of us reject the gospel? Why is it that so many of us, we're comfortable just with a little bit. We're comfortable just kind of having a a really slight case of, of, of Christianity. And as a result, Lord, we're going to be so highly frustrated. Lord, I pray that today we would understand what it means to be all in. God, forgive us for our apathy, complacency. Lord, I pray that there would be just a a newness this week, a freshness as we go to the Word individually and as we have our quiet times, our times of prayer. I ask God that that you would just uh, do a work and God, that you would speak to us. Lord, I ask that there would be there would be just a desire to share this with others and we wouldn't just be content to keep it here inside these four walls, but 
We wouldn't just be content to keep it inside our heart, but Lord, we would just share it. And so as we go from here, Father, give us boldness. Give us boldness to speak passionately about Jesus, what he's done for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a life of prayer. And Father, again, as we have been rethinking the gospel, that you would take us back to the heart of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. And we ask these favors. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And again, all of God's people said, Amen. You know what? If, if, if God convicts you, speaks to you, and you need to pray, you know, make sure you call the church office. We'd love to meet with you and pray and make sure that things are resolved between you and the Lord. Thanks for coming. This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.